0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody! Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. If you go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the promo code Other People O T H E R P P L, you'll get 33% off of whatever you purchase at tweakedaudio.com the promo code is other people tweaked tweaked audio these are earbuds these are headphones you can listen to things with them go and get some oh my god
1: you are not alone you have found other
2: people
1: you and i have a friend in common
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think
2: it's really beautiful, beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, oh, Brad Listy. Just one person is hey just Hey everybody,
0: oh, right. how's it going? i Brad Listy. <laughs> right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm here in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Charmaine Craig. Her new novel is called Miss Burma. It's available now from Grove Press. She was just here a few minutes ago. We had a conversation. That is coming up momentarily. Uh, before we get there, I do want to read some email. I've been getting a lot of letters, uh, especially after last week's episode. I got a lot of, a lot of nice notes from people regarding the death of my dog, Walter. Uh, so if I, you know, I'm not going to read all of those in the monologue. I'm not going to do that to you, but, but, uh, for the people who did write in, I just want to say a thank you. I appreciate all the kind words. Um, so a listener named Tom writes, uh, Dear Brad, I thought your account of Walter's untimely demise and the aftermath was a remarkable bit of storytelling worthy of This American Life. Is there a way to slip it under Ira Glass's door? Signed, Tom. Uh, I don't know. I mean, thank you, but I don't know, A, if this is a fit for this American <laughs> This American Life. It's very macabre, though I guess sometimes they go there. And I do not know uh, how to slip anything under Ira Glass's door. But if anybody out there does, feel free to uh, pass it along. Thank you, Tom. A listener named KT writes to me with the subject heading of the email uh, in all caps. It just says, why have guests? KT writes, dear Brad, you don't even let them talk about their books. Shut up more. Signed, KT. I can't uh, disagree with that entirely. I have have the same thought about myself. I need to be more quiet sometimes. I can talk too much on this show. I concede that. I will say, too, KT, that if you're responding to the last episode uh, with Amelia Gray, a couple things here. First of all, I was drinking scotch, which is a first for me on this program. I think it's the first time I've ever been drinking during the interview except for maybe the holiday episodes which are you know inherently festive on purpose but the episode with amelia was kind of an, uh, an irish wake for walter my dog and you know it was just a couple of days after he had died and for those of you listening my dog walter uh, choked on a bagel and died unexpectedly and then amelia came over and she brought a bottle of uh, glenfiddich which we drank some of as we were talking so that probably made me a little bit more chatty than usual. And then, secondly, it was Amelia's third uh, guest appearance on this program. So she was her third time on the show. And I know her uh, from here in Los Angeles. We're buddies. So there was a familiar, uh, familiarity and a rapport uh, pre existing. It was also her third time. So I didn't want to repeat previous episodes. And so I think that the nature of the conversation was a bit different than maybe what you're used to or what you would expect from an interview show. So perhaps that's what you're responding to, KT. Uh, That said, point taken. I'll try to dial it back. Where it's appropriate. And then finally, a listener named Catherine writes, Hi Brad, I'm a big fan of the podcast and I was really sad to hear about what happened to Walter. I have a little chihuahua. And after I heard that episode, I went home and googled how to perform the Heimlich Maneuver on dogs... It seems next to impossible to pull off. I was also really interested in the story of your latest novel, which you talked about pulling from the market because it was too sad. I would love to know more about how and why you made that decision, if you feel inclined to say more about it. Hearing you talk about your own writing process is one of my favorite things about the show. I'm a writer too, but I have yet to publish or even submit anything for publication. And one of the reasons is even when I've written something I really love... I tend to end up second guessing whether it's to this or to that sad, angry, melodramatic, quote unquote, emotional to share with the world. Thanks for the podcast. Signed Catherine. So, yeah, you know, I did in my conversation with Amelia, I think for the first time on this program, talk about my novel, the pinatas, which I submitted and then pulled from the market recently. So that's been a saga. And I'd say it's very complicated to talk about. I have complicated feelings about it. On the one hand, I feel relief. On the other hand, I feel humiliation. On the other hand, I feel at peace with it. You know, I think it's all of these things, they're all true. Ultimately, I'm fine, and maybe more fine than I would have expected to be considering how hard I worked on the book. But what I, what I did was I gave the novel after a very rigorous, uh, writing and editorial process. I gave them the manuscript to my agent and I said, submit it. And I don't want to know anything unless something good happens. I don't need the play by play. I don't need a summary of every rejection. Just if something good happens, let me know. Otherwise I don't want to hear anything. And so she submitted it and I didn't hear anything (laughs) for a while. And then, you know, I think almost immediately I started to imagine like, Oh, this book going out into the world would be very stressful for me to be exposing this like deeply personal, painful, (laughs) Uh, episodes, uh, from my life rendered into fiction, but like very close to the bone. And I was, I was genuinely ambivalent about the thought of that. And pretty soon after submitting it, you know, cause I feel like things happen fast. If things are going to happen in publishing, usually not always, but usually. And so like two or three weeks in, I started to be like, well, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't meant to be, maybe I should take a minute and rethink this. But let's see what happens. It's already out there. And then I thought you know my agent would email me infrequently and just say, Hey, you know, I'm just touching base. You know, the general feeling that people are having is that, you know, this is a really sad book and it's uh you know, there were there's always a variety of it's the same language in a rejection that you always get, you know, but I think like the general takeaway was like too sad. Not not enough like redemption, or not as not enough of a redeeming experience for the reader, leaves you feeling like gutted and empty, (laughs) like that kind of thing, you know. And so, I've had all sorts of different thoughts about it. I took this book through every pace over the course of three years. And for those of you who are brand new to the show or brand new to this book, uh, the book basically is a grief novel. That is me trying to grapple with the loss of uh, one of my best friends to an opiate overdose, followed by the loss of five pregnancies. My wife and I went through five miscarriages, and then we uh, finally got lucky and we welcomed a son into the world. And he was born with some pretty serious health issues that, um, you know, we're working through, but it's very, it's been very difficult for us. So uh, just a lot of difficult experiences coupled with, uh, like real world stresses, like job stress, financial stress, like all that stuff, trying to be a married person and a father and a friend and a citizen and a, you know, all this stuff rolled into one. And I don't want to overhype it because everybody goes through shit and there are plenty of people on the earth who have it way worse than I do. So I don't want to create like a poor me narrative on this show, but you know, This is is the work that we do, or a lot of us do. You're grappling with life and the difficulties of your particular experience and trying to render it in a way that uh, is accessible to other people and maybe makes them feel less alone in their own difficulties. And that's what I was trying to do. And And I'm sure that the book succeeds in moments. In fact, I know it does. There are plenty of good moments in it, but I just don't know if the whole thing holds together despite my best efforts. And, uh, you know, I think it seems to be the indication that publishers are giving us is that it doesn't, or at least we, you know, we didn't find somebody who felt that way. And in my head, I, I guess I just had, had it figured that if the book had really succeeded, there would have been an immediate enthusiastic response from multiple editors Which is quite possibly asking too much, but that's how I had it in my head. Or maybe that's a misperception. Maybe there are certain books that, you know, they're meant for small presses and they'll find their audience that way. And maybe I'm doing my book a disservice by not taking it out to small presses. You know, maybe that's a mistake. It's tough to know. But regardless, I think right now my inclination is to just press pause for a while, um, you know, I've got a day job now and I'm like trying to figure out how I'm going to find time to do everything. It's going to just take some adjustment, you know, and rejiggering of my schedule, figuring out my time resources and thinking about the book some more or letting it sort of simmer in my subconscious. Maybe there's a way to fix it. Maybe it doesn't need fixing. And maybe when I reread it at some point, and by the way, I have not read this thing since, you know, early this year. I want to say the last time I looked at it was in January, which if you know anything about my memory means I've completely forgotten my own book. I have no idea what I even said, but at some point I'll take a look at it and maybe I'll reread it and be like, you know what? This is good. I did it and I feel good about it. And I'm going to take it out to a small press and see if I can find a home for it. Or maybe I'll reread it and be like, thank God this thing never went out and saw the light of day. Or maybe I'll reread it and say, you know what, it's almost there, and I know how to fix it, and I'm going to make these changes. You know, I don't know what it's going, to, I don't know what form it's going to take. But, um, all of that aside, feel very good about the fact that I did the work, and feel like I gained from it, regardless. And that's not just like a schmaltz. That's for real. And I think there's something about giving your very best effort. And again, this is going to sound corny, but I think it's true. Like if you really do give your very best effort and you don't cut corners and you, you do everything you can, there's peace of mind in that. And I have that, like, I really know that I didn't cut corners on this book, but it just may be the case that like emotionally I wasn't there or I, you know, I don't know. I always, I think of it in terms of like the size of one soul, like a, a great writer is like a big soul or at least in the function of their work. You know, maybe my soul just isn't there yet or maybe, it, you know, not in this lifetime or something. I don't know. So Catherine, I hope that explains it at least somewhat. It's, it's hard to talk about. It's very, it feels very multifaceted, but that's where things are and we'll just see how it develops. We'll see where it goes. And, uh, maybe there's something to be resuscitated you know, resuscitated in there, or maybe it's just a teardown or a do over. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. So that said, let's get on with the show. My guest today is Charmaine Craig. Her new novel is called Miss Burma. It's available now from Grove Press. Had a great time talking with her. Uh, She's got quite a story to tell. And uh, you're going to hear a little bit about it right now. So here she is, folks. This is Charmaine Craig.
2: In some ways, you could say I've been working on this book for... 15 years. It's been 15 years since my first book was published, which is an embarrassingly long period of time. No,
0: I'm, I'm right behind you. So yeah, I'm going to probably outdo that.
2: (laughs) Oh, um, that said, I didn't write for about four of those years because I I had two kids. I was teaching the whole time and it took me a while to figure out how to be a present mother and a professor and a novelist. Um, but I also wrote a whole other book version of this book, a completely different version of this book, several drafts of that version, um, in that time as well. So in some ways this is sort of my third book.
0: And so, and so how did you know, I guess you just had a feel for when you got it right. Cause I mean, you wrote like an entire draft or entire version and then decided to redo or decided that you needed to make massive changes. Like, do you know what I'm saying? How specific were, um, the creative directions you were giving yourself or was it just like a, this isn't quite right yet?
2: So, the first version of the book was you know I had inherited this um kind of epic story um from my family, just in brief that my mother was was this um, was twice Miss Burma, national beauty queen in Burma, something I was a little embarrassed about, as was she. She was a famous actress, but she became this woman warrior when her first husband was assassinated um He was a resistance leader and she assumed leadership of his troops. So I, I, I inherited this story, but I, I felt that I wasn't particularly interested in those events. Didn't know how to render them on the page without falling into a whole lot of stereotypes. Um, had written with my first book, a historical novel and didn't want to do that again for a lot of reasons.
0: It's a lot
1: of work.
2: A, it's a lot of work, B, it's easy for readers and, and reviewers to get kind of hung up on the nonfiction aspects of the story and to be blind to um, the more literary qualities of the narrative. And I wanted to feature those literary qualities, my interest particularly being in in, in representing consciousness itself in and... Um, I thought that if I, I, for the first version of this book, I, I wanted to, to feature that by leaving the history and the politics way in the background and setting the story in contemporary times as a kind of conversation between a woman very much based on my mother and her American daughter, very much based on myself. Right. And so I, I showed that book to um, two or three editors who had a very similar responses. Um, basically this is a really compelling story. We might want to do it, but we feel like you've sort of missed an opportunity to, um, tell a story of a country and a people. My mother's story again, being my mother's country being, having been Burma and her people being the Karen ethnic minority group or indigenous to Burma and a long persecuted minority group. Um, And so I took my agent at the time very kindly and generously to me, said, okay, well, let's just go, let's just go out with it. And I said, wait, let me think about it. And for nine months I thought about it. And it was tough because I, after that was, that was at least seven years into the process of writing. And I, you know, I wanted to have a book, Yeah. but on the other hand, I realized that this might be, Maybe the most important story I ever told in my life, and I would never get another chance to do it. And I knew after nine months of thinking that they were that these editors were right. Hmm. And, and it took nine months. Yeah. Yes. That's a lot of thinking. I, I wrote something uh, something else in the, in the, during that period, which right. I still have yet to revise and so on. But um, yeah, and I just basically completely trashed the book one scene, the, the, uh, the remnants of one scene are in this new version, but otherwise it's a completely new book.
0: See, but there's wisdom in that. I think, you know, and I think a lot of times it's difficult to resist the impulse to want to go out and try to publish mm-hmm. and to be done and to yeah, sort of have that, down. that, that emotional like release, like, okay, it's out of me. I did it. Right. Somebody <laughs> likes it, but you had the, uh, the fortitude to press pause.
2: And I do think that, you know, sort of like if, you know, um, a person accreting experience and and layers with time, literary work can do the same thing. I mean, I do think it's there are some great examples of, of books that have been born quickly, but on the other hand, I, I strongly feel this book gained um, in in density and, and complexity right. by having by having had that previous whole other version.
0: Yeah. I'm fascinated by books that are born super quickly and are really strong. Like that's,
2: <laughs> can you think of some examples? <laughs> well, I mean, I've had people
0: on the show who've, and I'm, I'm going to struggle to remember mm-hmm. who, but who are like, yeah, you know, just shot out of me and, or, you know, Hanya Yanagihara. Uh, I'm looking at her book right now, a little life. It's like, I want to say 150,000 words or something. And she wrote it in, what was it? Like a year. Oh, I- I don't know. I mean, no, that's what she told me. My goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, there are examples and, uh, I would guess that if you did the math, if someone actually did like the data on Mm -hmm. this, it would be the exception rather than the rule. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think too, you know, when you're dealing with a narrative that's really close to home, uh, especially maybe, um, in a way that's almost harder to see, I think,
2: well, hard, As, what do you mean harder to see?
0: Uh, just clarity, depth, like, right. like, just like you were saying, you right. know, like gaining okay. in density, like I completely it, agree with you. Yes. It's, it's weird that it's like ourselves that are the, maybe the hardest to have yes. perspective on and like the experiences of, uh, you know, our inner circle or our family or whatever it is. Right. Uh, so it, I don't know that that seems logical to me. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get to a point where you had to hand it off to somebody and say, tell me if it's done or did you know, like did, when you got it? Or did you just and, give Oh, up? I
2: felt that I knew. That's not to say that um, I didn't have to do... Um, so the book turned from this first-person conversation, really, to a multi-perspectival, third-person epic. And I, I, I knew that I had it, finally. When, But again, that's not to say that there wasn't quite a bit of editing, pulling out some of the history and politics were sort of, um, toning it down. I'd almost overdone it initially and yeah. then drawing out more of the, 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 the interpersonal, the, the you know, the relational, the, the love story.
0: And so why don't we, can you talk a little bit about so listeners can get a feel for the family, the, the real family story mm-hmm. that drives the book?
2: Right. So, uh, it turned out when I, when I sort of submitted to writing this other version of the book, I realized I needed to look not just at my mother, but at the lives of her parents, which were equally dramatic and epic. They were both born minorities in Burma. Burma is made up of, of fifty to sixty percent ethnic Burmans that are the majority race, and then the rest, just this incredible tapestry of, of, of ethnic minority peoples, um, hu- over a hundred. But there are seven or eight major groups. Um, my grandfather was not born into one of these major groups. He was born a Sephardic Jew in the 20s in um, Rangoon. Um, and it was a really actually a thriving Jewish community at that point. Um, in
0: Rangoon? Yeah. Well, that's mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known that.
2: I know. Uh, his grandfather was the rabbi of Rangoon. He was orphaned at an early age and sent to Calcutta to live with his maternal aunties, whose father was the rabbi of Calcutta. And uh, by the time he returned to Rangoon in the late thirties, um, the colonial era was already really drawing to a close. And while he was working as a British officer uh, at a seaport called Akyab, he saw at the end of a jetty, a woman with hair down to her ankles. And this was my my grandmother who was um, Karen. The Karen, as I mentioned, are, are one of Burma's indigenous peoples, one of their largest ethnic minority groups. For hundreds of years before the British began to conquer Burma in right. the 1800s, they were enslaved by the ethnic Burman leaders. Ah. Um, so they were really kind of long, oppressed peoples. And my grandfather was a romantic um, to the end of his days and determined to marry this woman even though he knew nothing of her people and couldn't even speak with her. Um, so they that was sort of the beginning of his Involvement in the Karen plight. And he was twice captured during the Second World War when the the Japanese were led into the country by the ethnic Burmans who wanted not only to oust the British, but to restore Burma to the domain of the Burmans. Burmans. And so um, both times that he was captured, he was saved by the Karens and he was so touched by their loyalty, not only to him, but to the British um, whom they fought for during the war um, that he and he was so horrified actually, by what happened to them on the heels of the war when the when the British ceded the country to the Burmans, and then the Korans were immediately persecuted again in really brutal ways um, that he eventually became an architect of the Koran Revolution, which became um, one of or the longest running civil war in recorded history
0: wow. that's so. quite a legacy, that's quite a story yeah. So you come from badass people
2: kind of yeah, like revolutionary leaders. I know, but that was part of the challenge is how do you humanize and make into characters, these badass people without falling into a whole lot of simplistic thinking.
0: It's interesting to think about people who have to, who rise to those kinds of challenges in life. Like, Mm. is it something that originates with them or is it, you know, they're just like ordinary people who happen to be in this place at this time. Do you know what I'm saying? Did you have any insight? I thought about that so much. Like why them? Like why do certain people emerge in situations like that Mm -hmm. and take on a heroic role or do they find the wherewithal to function and to have courage? Whereas a lot of people, I think, shrink from those moments and look the other way or decide not to get involved or
2: yeah, that was a, such a big part of my challenge and also of the narrative itself is, first of all, finding kind of in order to make these people who were my family members into characters, narrowing them or distilling them to the extent that I um, could almost think of them as having a, a one central affliction and one kind of archetypal gesture that would represent them so in the case of my grandfather he really was a boxer but he also was um, he was a boxer he was a boxer that helped me yeah. a lot because i thought you know he'd been orphaned he received a lot of abuse because of being orphaned and jewish and it sort of felt like his his reaction to the blows of life was to punch back um but on the other hand another kind of concomitant reaction was to fall on his knees and he was sent to an Anglican boarding school of all things in India. And so this other reaction was to fall on his knees and and before God, whom he felt loved him in a singular way as he felt God loved everyone else in a singular way. So there was this this oppositional kind of force in him between submission on the one hand and the need to be loved because he was orphaned. And on the other hand, this... This desire to fight and nev- and not give up, and just finding those that kind of paradoxical, um, m- those mixed motivations, um, gave me some kind of access into how and why someone like him could have risked everything, to to stand up to right. this tyrant, or to to, to the face. It's the horrible, fa- you know, face of persecution.
0: I hey, mean, um, do you do you ever find yourself wondering, like? if I'm in a similar situation, would I have the same gumption? Like, do you know, do you feel a sense of personal pressure to carry that legacy or to, does it inform the way that you I th- act as a citizen or a citizen of the world or whatever?
2: Yes and no. I mean, I, I think that it absolutely informed the way I approached the writing this book ultimately. Um, to give you an example, my mo- my mother died in 2010, and she wasn't just a woman warrior back in the 60s in Burma. She came to this country in the late 60s, and she was sort of sucked into the womb of motherhood for a long time, and I think felt a lot of ambivalence about what she had left behind, um, you know, all this, these people whom she had fought for in so many ways, and then, and then she just, I think she felt like she would abandoned them, but she also felt... That she'd abandoned a, a feeling of belonging um here but by
0: Cuba coming here yeah
2: and and kind of giving herself so much to to kind of the needs of her children as opposed to the needs of a people um and i think she felt that we couldn't ever love and appreciate her in the way that her own people did um But when 1988 happened, there was in 1988, there was a massive student protest in Burma and like 10,000 people were mowed over by the government or troops. And she, it was a rallying cry for her. And she threw herself into Burma activism for the rest of her life. So that's a long time. And she was, I think, I think most people would agree the most important Burma activist based in the United States. And so when she died... I, soon after she died, I went to Burma. I was asked to go there. I felt sort of to, to stand in her shoes in a little bit. There, was, there were elections going on among the Karens. And on the flight home, I was sitting next to this woman who was who I, I'd never met her before. She was the spiritual healer based in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And she led me through this it was sort of one of those plain moments. I was going to say this <laughs> <Yeah>. sounds epic. <laughs> yeah, she led me through this guided, you know, meditation, and where we went into this like locked room in my heart, <laughs> and uh-huh. a little cheesy, but very moving. By the way, because... we're going to do
0: the, something very similar in just a bit. <laughs>
2: oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I realized in that moment that I had that I could never, I could never be the political person that my mother was and yet i began to glimpse how the book could be a political act
0: right right i mean yeah i get it and and i think that uh we all need to have a creative breakthrough on an airplane sitting next <laughs> to a spiritual healer that's what yeah, it takes i guess so. <laughs> Oh goodness. So yeah. And when you go back there, do people, do people remember your mother? Like, was there a a sense of homecoming or a sense of like, well, how, how was your experience of it? Having not really spent much time there, Mm -hmm. you know, but having such a rich, like family history, uh, of such consequence.
2: Yeah. The first time I went back, um, was in my twenties. I've only been there twice and, you know, I, it was everything the the first moment i mean i was i went with my my sister and we were saying to each other when we landed oh it's so good to finally be here we feel like we're at home because we've never felt you know completely at home in the united states or being kind of a divided identity and uh and then we we were Really, we had just said that, and we five steps later, we're walking down the street. A bunch of kids run up to us and say, "You know, good evening, white people." And um,
1: <laughs> You're a, you don't yeah. belong anywhere. <laughs> yeah,
2: but there was the, there. I particularly felt on this second trip. You know, twenty years later, um, or almost twenty years later, a profound sense of ease. I was staying in a women's barracks, so with women I hadn't met before, sleeping on the ground or on, on bamboo. Um, and I, there's a, there's a way in which um, meekness is sort of celebrated, and um, the egalitarian nature of of relationships just felt so comfortable to me. Like I was just drinking water that I had never really had before. And it just, and I, I was able to just let down my guard and relax in a way I never have really been able to hear. Ugh. And that felt so good. And I even was aware that it, you know, it's like the shit hit the fan here. I could always go back. Like right. that was the feeling I had.
0: That's nice. Mm-hmm. You know? And, uh, it was when you were saying that, I was thinking that sounds like the opposite of Los Angeles, <laughs> you know? Yeah. know? Yeah. Yes, it is. You know? um so, you know, it's, I'm thinking of, I have very limited uh, knowledge of Myanmar, Burma. What do you, what do you call it? Do you have a I preference? I Burma.
2: Because that's the
0: original, like it got changed, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird, but Burma is considered the inclusive term, though the ethnic Burmans are the majority race. Um, Burmese refers to not only the language of the Burmans, but all of Burma's citizens uh-huh. and Inhabitants, um, and so Burma has come to be regarded by um, most of the people living there as an inclusive term, whereas Myanmar, Myanmar is the word of the Burmans for their own ethnic group. That's what they. Uh, that's what their sort of elevated term for themselves is. Gotcha. So it would be like calling the country White Land or something.
0: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because when I was on my honeymoon, of all things, I read this book just randomly picked it up in a bookstore called. Finding George Orwell in Burma. Oh
2: yeah, by Emma Larkin. Yeah. Have you read it's that? A lovely book. Yeah. yeah. So I
0: mean, I should, and I had that was my introduction to the whole history, and uh, I'm an Orwell fan, and mm-hmm. I didn't realize that you know I didn't know that part of his literary history, but it gave me some real insight into the country, and it made me want to go there, oh. and it also I, it makes me want to ask you this question: like, was his work, did, like, was that something that you grew up with, or was it was it is it really as um, much of a like central part of the literary culture there, as the book makes it out to be,
2: uh, absolutely. Um, I um, many people in Burma, who, you know, with whom I've spoke, and I think lark I seem to recall she writes about this in the book. Maybe you can remind me. Um, feel that many of his books, not just the ones that were overtly about Burma, are really about Burma.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like I didn't realize, but when you're talking about um, 1984. Mm-hmm.
2: Or Animal Farm. Or
0: Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. You know, it was his direct experience as kind of a part of the oppressing uh, class or the oppressing outside uh, government. Right. And seeing it from the inside out that mm-hmm. gave him all of those insights, that makes mm-hmm. quite a lot of sense. You know, he had to have seen it somewhere and it, it was there.
2: Right. And it turns out he was, in fact, had quite a bit of experience with the Karen people, too, which was interesting. And I hadn't known about that until fairly recently.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how many more years do you think it'll be before you write another book? Like when you get done with a 15 year project, are you energized and ready to go, uh, right back to the keyboard and keep writing? Or do you feel like, oh my God, like this was such an incredibly long process. Like I need a break.
2: No, I don't feel like I need a break. I'm energized and want to keep going. I think the thing that I'm worried about and I want to guard myself against is, is feeling like I need to do something too quickly because the, the the instinct is I never want to do something that demanding again. And um, it was just so incredibly demanding, not only um, because of the research, which really is, is just time, but I had to do sort of my, my own investigative journalism a little bit to write this story, but, um, but then figuring out how in the world to, to make elegant and simple, this very complicated narrative um so yeah the main thing is i i want to um force myself to not not be lazy
0: the next time Not just be like i'm I'm done i did it it's all done yeah or or
2: (laughs) i'm gonna write a two year you know something that i can write in two years i don't want to do i don't want to give myself an out just because this one took so long right yeah
0: I get it. You know, I gotta, I I need to listen to that advice myself. But, um, I think that there is such a thing as creative momentum.
2: Yeah. Oh, I agree. You don't want to let it lapse. I do not want to let it lapse. No.
0: And so what was the publication process? Like once you got this manuscript where you wanted it to go and then you took it out, like was the reception good? Like you sold it relatively quickly. Did it,
2: it's a really, it's a really tough sell, I think, because no one cares about Burma and people. I do, you except for you. <laughs> yeah. um, I think people assume one of two things: it's either going to be, you know, hard to relate. I am saying this in quotes, relate to, which is something that bothers me, or um, this idea that we have to relate to what we read, or um, that I am going to be leaning on the crutch of of the exotic and my identity and. <clears throat> that it won't be, have any literary heft, you know, one of those two things. Yeah. And I really tried to make it neither of those things. And, and I think the book becomes as much about the United States, or, or at least significantly about the United States as well. Um, so my agent helped me through a few drafts, you know, giving me feedback about when I was, again, when I was... <sighs> including too much politics. Um, but there, I mean, there was, there was a lot of interest, but, but perhaps it, some more cautiousness about it than I had hoped. And I felt lucky that this one editor, um, Peter Blackstock, uh, Grove, who had, who had just edited the sympathizer okay, fell yeah. so in love with it that I just knew right away as soon as he, he was sort of the first person to get back to us and, I, I just told my agent, I, I'm, I'm, I want to go with him. We're good. Because he, he just was so passionate. He was saying all the right things that, and I still feel really lucky to be with him.
0: That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Uh, you grew up in Los Angeles. I did. Okay. So let's talk about your childhood. Like you grew up in the city. Uh, how did you wind up here? Like your mother,
2: my, so the short story is when my mother was in, um, she had gotten a scholarship to Cambridge in Burma, and that was given to a government official. She was then bumped to Tufts University, where she met my father. Um, They went on a few little chaste dates. My father was too sort of tentative to to reveal himself to her. She went back to Burma, and um, eight years later, he ended up learning of the assassination of her first husband and rendezvousing with her in Bangkok and convincing her to marry him. And they came to well, she made quite an impression she did wow yep he says that the first time he saw her, he'd been hearing rumors at tufts that miss brema was on campus and he was intrigued and imagined a sort of in his words sort of petite delicate person and he was sitting in the stoop of his fraternity and suddenly um heard all these like hoots and looked up and there was a woman with a bag of laundry on her back and a sarong, she shot a huge, like just evil glare at these guys on the stoop and frat boys. And that was like it, apparently, for my dad. That was it. He loved her. Oh. her passionate anger.
0: Yeah. And so, okay, so then they came back over to the so Lincoln.
2: Yes, Lincoln Towers in Manhattan, and uh, she could only stand New York City and New York for so long. I was born over there, but they came here to. The more hospitable West coast they thought yeah. and more tolerant because it was still not easy to be a, a mixed race couple. I think then
0: back in those days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew a guy who, God, he's probably, I don't even know. If he's still with us. Um, but he was, he's probably close to 80 at this point or in his eighties. And he was raised in Manhattan and he wound up, uh, marrying a black woman back in the sixties. I guess mm-hmm. it would have been, And there, he had to live on a certain street up, you know, the upper, I don't know what it, where it was, but it was like upper nineties or whatever it was. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. he said, there was like only like a couple of blocks Mm -hmm. where you really could live comfortably as a mixed race couple in New York city, which sort of surprised me. I was like, really in Manhattan, you couldn't, but he was like, "Eh." you know, that
2: makes sense because they actually left the city to go out to the country because they felt uncomfortable.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, and so did you like growing up here?
2: I loved growing up here.
0: You did? Yeah, I did. Good. i like to hear that.
2: Yeah. I, um, it irritated me when, when people were sort of from the San Francisco area or the East coast would put down Los Angeles.
0: I get a little, I bristle a little bit cause I do have some love for this place. So I did live, you grow up here? No, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Milwaukee. Okay. <laughs> I should know that. <laughs> no. Uh, but you know, I have lived here longer than I've lived anywhere by a long shot. So I'm, I feel like I'm a Los Angelino at this point. Mm -hmm. It's been almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, I, there's something about it that I will never tire of, you know, like there's a a romance to Los Angeles. I think it's a really beautiful, like beautiful place. There's a lot of uglinesses, Mm -hmm. but like, it's a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why there's so many people here. Um, and I like the idea, I guess, of living somewhere where the creative arts are so central and where, uh, I don't know. I feel like it, it, as much as, I mean, I know there's a lot of exceptions to this rule, but it's a, it's a very accepting place. Like you can be an right. eccentric here yes, and nobody really bats an eye. Like yes. there's something I love about that where it, cause I've lived in other places where to have any kind of eccentricity or artistic impulse or whatever really makes you an outlier. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And
0: in Los Angeles, it's like, oh yeah, you yeah. know. You're in the circus, you know. <laughs> Which one? You know, right.
2: Like... Yeah, I, I think accepting is the perfect way to put it. I mean, that's not to say that I didn't experience here back in the, you know, let's see, the the '70s when I was a child. Um, you know, all the expected uh, put downs, just simply because of my race, um, but and that was, it was pretty extreme, but nevertheless, when I would then go for summer camps or whatever to the Midwest, it was always so much more. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that I grew up here.
0: What part of town were you in?
2: Actually the West side, Rustic Canyon.
0: Okay. Where's Rustic Canyon?
2: Santa Monica Canyon. Um, you know, if you go down, um, San Vicente, you know where Ocean Avenue is. Yeah. Well, if you were to kind of go go down Seventh, okay, it leads you down to the yeah.
0: There's a rest- isn't there, there a restaurant called Rustic Canyon? It's right there.
2: I think so. Yeah. It's <laughs> been you know I just came back so I don't I'm not up on all the restaurants.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Well, that's nice. And it's like it must have been idyllic. I mean, back then too, it's like not quite as crowded. Oh, I always yeah. idealize like former. To California. be honest,
2: it was a lot better than it is now.
0: It yeah, yeah. is. Hate to tell you. Yeah. Well.
2: I've been a bit shocked coming back.
0: I've always, I always miss the golden age of every place. You know, everyone's always like, it was so great. Like 20 (laughs) years ago, you should have been here. (laughs) Um, and so you acted.
2: Yes, I did.
0: You were like a a full on actor in movies, TV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For
2: a limited period of time. But but you did it. You did the thing.
0: So how did that, how did that happen?
2: You know, I am just as much an actor at heart as I am a writer. And when I say that, I mean that genuinely the craft of, of acting and well, I think the instinct is, is very similar. The impulse to kind of empathically embody others and to, um, you know, inhabit these other characters. It's so similar. Um, I I can
0: can see how being an actor and having like that training and that work experience would serve you well. Uh, as a novelist and vice versa, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you are like when you're, when you're writing a novel, you are sort of acting. It's just, you're all by yourself and it's happening in your head and you're voicing characters and you're, like you say, embodying them empathically and trying to figure out how they would behave in situation. you know, right. it's, it's all the same it is. sort it's of all stuff. The s- exactly. Yeah. But you have, I mean, you seem to me like a very, you're like a deep soul inward person. Um, not that, I mean, and great actors are always that, but like, I feel like there's also like you have to be kind of a ham.
2: Mm-hmm. do you have that to you? No, no, and you know, if you give me the lines and you put me out i'm I can be I can be if a, if the character demands that, I will be that. but just as a person, I'm not an extrovert. I'm not you're a ham. not always on oh no, no no, and and you're right i I was in a meeting once with a high powered agent, Hollywood agent, and Um, who was considering taking me on and he said, you know, I'm not convinced you're going to go into a room and convince everyone in the room that you're going to be a blast to work with. And (laughs) I said, no, you're right. I'm not, but I mean, I will, I will kill the audition. Um, that sounds so egotistical.
0: That out. No, I'm no. no, but I mean, no, you'll, do, like, I you'll be like, that. I'll be a professional. I'll go in and they will get my very best. I get they will, it.
2: That's what I meant that, but, that I'm, I'm going to go in there and, and commit to the performance, but I can't. And, and that was part of what was so <sighs> defeating about being in that realm. I'm and just that. I mean, there were so many things that and then just the way that as a woman, you know, the first thing is, is. What's your size? What do you look like? How sexy are you? And, um, and then just the whole ethnic problem, not fitting into any type, right? And, uh, and just how that was always the way every conversation started. You know, with 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 how you know the question of you know what type, how attractive, how thin. Um, they re- and it's really overt. Oh my gosh! It at least was. Yeah. That's one of the ways
0: that hopefully L.A. has gotten better since I've lived here. <laughs> has it gotten any better for women? I mean, because I feel like there's at least been some discussion about it.
2: Mm-hmm. I but can only imagine it, it, it's gotten better. I um, One would hope. I hope so.
0: At least not just being, or maybe it's just gone more underground or something. You know, a lot of times I think that's what happens. People just, it's like racism, you know, mm-hmm. there's all this like, subversion of it or it gets quiet and then it gets coded, you know, mm-hmm. there's coded, but it's really still there. Right. It's not really like the underlying stuff isn't addressed. And, you know, as like a casual moviegoer, white guy growing up, just like liking, going to the movies. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you just sort of get used to the world of the movies. And it's like, to give an example, it's like the 50 or 60 year old white male protagonist who always like somehow has like a, 30 year old, beautiful, right. great. Like that is such a common thing in the movies that you right. just take it for granted. Like, Oh, of course, like right. this is how it works. And then you stop and think about it and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Like that's, not yeah, how it works. <laughs> you know. Know? Like, but it oh. works like that in the movies. And so you realize like, Oh, this is an extension of the people who make decisions. Like the powerful people who make decisions about what goes into movies. Like they're expressing themselves this way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Was... And there's, that's just one example.
2: Right. Being so, in the casting room in those for those kinds of parts, like you're saying, like the Bond girl type thing or, or anything. Yeah. It was... Did you audition for James Bond movies? No, but there were others that were the equivalent. Yeah. And it was so odd having just graduated from Harvard and written, you know, a very like kind of obscure thesis on medieval women mystics. And then... <laughs> to sort of be sitting on the casting couch and auditioning for, you know, I don't know, some role like that. And I just felt that I was just an imposter. And it was it I was sort of it just it just felt almost like it wasn't responsible of me to put myself in that position as a woman an educated woman. Right. I get that to feeling. go along with it. You
0: do know? you feel do you feel like you found your thing? Do you know that you have like that sense of like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is my like mission on earth. I I, I want that very badly. I want to have that feeling like in a, like a 100% kind of way, but is that like a a romanticizing of it or does anybody have that? Do you have that? I
2: have to be honest. I do. You do. But I think it's maybe because I've come through things like that acting thing. I mean, I remember when I was writing my first novel, it sort of hit me in a powerful way. Oh my gosh, this is the ultimate manifestation of all of the things that I've been working toward, whether it's my literary, you know, scholarly efforts, um, then merged with with the acting, merged with... I actually had a kind of unofficial minor in in photography and film as as an undergraduate. And so it was this this, this coming together... And then I had spent a lot of years dancing, and so it was sort of this coming together of 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 all of that of the various arts and and um but that's not to say I don't have moments where I'm like it would have been so much easier to want to do something where I could have made more money <laughs> <laughs> right
0: oh it's a hard i mean it's not easy no the writing life like the i mean you know but then again neither like it, it, neither is coal mining or uh, there are a lot of jobs that aren't easy I don't, I, when writers, I don't want to be the guy who's like writing is so hard because it's a privilege to get to do it.
2: It is. It really is. To
0: get to sit around and make up stories and, you know, dive into oneself. And that's a, you get a lot from it. Like Mm. I, that's the way I feel like having written Mm -hmm. books. I just finished a book recently and, you know, I don't think I got it right, but even so the process of doing that work, I don't regret for a Mm 2nd
2: Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know exactly what you're saying.
0: Like the, the reward might, well, it might not be financial, mm-hmm. you know, but you, you have, I don't think you can replicate that. I mean, I, I think that's like the easiest thing to compare it to would be therapy because you're examining yourself
2: mm-hmm.
0: in this really concentrated way and you're slowing down moments. And exactly. You're, you're turning the attention. Yeah. The attention. You're just turning it over and turning it over and turning it over and it can be excruciating, but you come out of it a better person.
2: Expanded, I think.
0: Yeah. And, and slow down, slow down.
2: That's exactly the right way to put it. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I think that's the value of doing the work and whether a billion people read it or, you know, just that 500 person audience or whatever it is, um, there's still value in it, you know? And I, I just have to get, like, I don't have a sense right now as a writer of having that like next project, it takes me a while to like figure out what I want to say.
2: Oh, that's understandable. And you don't want to write just for the sake of writing.
0: Well, and I also tend to be motivated to write by like difficult shit that happens Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are like that, but like absent that, which is lovely, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? To not have like, yeah, knock on wood, you know, life will always give you something, but like, I question whether or not I'm a, I'm a person creatively who can just, I don't have any impulse to just generate stories,
2: Mm -hmm. but I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing because we don't need more stories.
0: (laughs) We need people like grappling with what it is to be alive and to be a conscious being. I feel that way. Yeah. You know, but the question is like, what's the vessel? Like what's the narrative that will allow me to explore that? and. You know, there, there is also the question of audience though. And I think maybe mm-hmm. this is what I'm running up against with this book is like, um, and I don't know, like, I don't want to make this about me, but I wrote a novel. It was about difficult stuff that's happened in my life. Like my son's health, um, fertility, like mm-hmm. all this stuff, mm-hmm. put it into a book. And I think I did the best work I've ever done, oh, that's but I don't think I could make I think the, the general response that I was getting from editors was just like, I don't know how we're going to make money on this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just brutal. And it was, <laughs> it was when I was writing it, it was when I was living it. And mm-hmm. so I think when you're dealing with difficult stuff in your work, uh, or any writer out there is dealing with difficult stuff, like, yes, you have to sit there and like turn over what's what you're going through and slow things down and kind of sit in there and be with these difficult moments to try to see them clearly and then render them on the page. But you've also got to consider your audience.
2: Is that another way of saying, and, and you know, um, what is the, is, is there, what is sort of the, the, the light underbelly of this darkness and brutality? Is there any, um, meaning to be found in the experience of this level of suffering? Any kind of redemptive consequence of the suffering, not not to put a bow on the suffering or, or dilute it in any way, but just um, well to also to to kind of um, endow it with some level of complexity
0: yeah, yeah, and and, and would
2: that help? I mean, I know you're talking about readership, but I, I wonder if that would help with that
0: I think I've, I think I was trying. I mean, this is, it brings up tough questions because you're like, maybe I, I've had this thought. Like, maybe I just am not large enough of soul to have like found it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or maybe I'm too close to it. Right. And I just, you know, it was just too much for me. Like, mm-hmm. I tried so hard, but like, it was just too painful and too, it's just too difficult and there's no, there's no bow. Right. <laughs> you know? like, right. No, bow whole... is
2: the wrong way. But, but I get it. it but...
0: You know what I'm saying? Like it, maybe there's just some things that are just, uh, really hard and sad and it's tough to kind of render them. Or maybe you need more time. Sort of like when you were, you know, at the point in your novel's history where you were handing it off to your agent and there's talk of submitting. And then you said, let me take nine months. Yeah. Maybe it just needs more time and perspective and mm-hmm. a teardown.
1: Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for all
0: the work that went into it. Right. Um, and it's just, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to know exactly when to make those decisions, you know, like when to press pause, when to press play, when to hand it off, when to know that you're done. I mean, I guess that's part of the skill.
2: So did you, is this, are you taking time with that novel
0: now? Or? Yeah. I mean, it's just, I pulled it. I like, you know, mm-hmm. my attitude and maybe this was like a self-serving attitude, but I was mm-hmm. sort of not self-serving, but, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to be like silly about it, but I, I think I was like, well, if there's not like immediate mm-hmm. interest from big publishers and there's mm-hmm. not like excitement, like I, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, I'm going to just take it back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think almost as soon as we submitted it and as excited as I was about that process, I, I got really nervous mm. in a way that like surprised me almost. I was like, do I want to put this out there? Mm-hmm. Like this is very personal. Right. Um and so I think maybe I'll revisit it at some point. I just think I need
2: I think time is, time the, is the op- yeah, to just
0: mm. podcast and <laughs> <laughs> um maybe work on some other stuff. You know, I want to do something really like I want to do something like overtly comedic. I do too. Yeah, I can. I, mean, I very
2: much want to do that for my next, which right? might seem odd looking yeah. at me and talking to me. <laughs> me too. <laughs>
0: I mean, because I have, you know, I think I have actually like that sensibility, um, which is, I guess everybody has. Like everyone has a funny side, but um, if there's not laughter in the work,
2: mm-hmm.
0: even if it's heavy,
2: sometimes it's really hard to find the laughter. Though, like with this, it's last an, book. sometimes it's inappropriate. Yeah. Right.
0: (laughs) You know, you can't just like throw it in there for the sake of making yourself feel better while you're writing it, you know? And so sometimes it's not called for That makes it even tougher. And I think that was part of the problem. I think for me, I got to have like some...
2: Well, maybe there's a way to take this narrative with time and kind of weave it into a bigger narrative that contains the other side. I don't know. Yeah. And I I thought, you know, there's all sorts
0: of thoughts. Like I... You know, writers do different things. Like sometimes, when writers are dealing with really difficult subject matter, they will um, bring in an element of the surreal. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. I, th- I was thinking of Slaughterhouse Five. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wow, mm-hmm. what could be grimmer than the firebombing of Dresden? Right, right. <laughs> and how do you grapple? And he gra- and Kurt Vonnegut grappled with that for years and years and years after the war, trying to figure out how to write about it. And finally, it's like, oh, it's like science fiction and time travel, and you know, all these different elements that made it palatable, Mm -hmm. you know, for an audience, but also I think for him to be able to like actually render it. And so maybe it's something like that, which is not something I've ever done before, but you know, there's part of me that's like, maybe I should just do something crazy, you know, like where you break out of reality a little bit and that way you're able to play some more and it's not quite so heavy, Mm -hmm. you know? So you want to do something comedic next. I do. Do you have an idea?
2: That thing that I said that I wrote during that nine month pause Yeah, was, it was actually a comedic, um, screenplay that I never went out with. Um, but what's
0: your sense of humor? It's re-humated. gotta be dry. I mean, just know like you, are you like, are you dark? Are you dry? Are you slapstick? Is it, <laughs> I don't
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. This, this, what, so this came out of, I was, and I don't want to talk about it too much, but, um, I had become, so my post my mother dying, I had two little kids and a job and I had become my dad's caretaker. He suddenly got every, everything like from dementia to heart disease, to two forms of cancer, to diabetes, um, all within nine months
0: after your mom died.
2: Yeah. And I, um, it was a pretty painful and sad, but very funny, um, situation that I found myself in. So I kind of turned it into this story. What was funny about it? Just the fact that my, it was just... the things that my dad got up to. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just the inappropriate comments that he would make and, um, uh, I know I'm, I'm sort of talking around things. I'm trying to think of some examples that will come off as funny without me, um, you know, reading you lines from that screenplay. But, um,
0: is that something you want to do is right for the screen as well? Or I, is that just I, a...
2: I did for a while. I think part of the, the, the appeal during that period of doing it was I was, you know, we talked about the pleasure of rendering consciousness on the page in fiction, but it's so laborious too. it's so difficult to draw that out. The layers of perception, um, I think that's why writing narrated, narrated narrative is, is so much harder than writing non-narrated narrative, such as, um, for the screen. Yeah. So I just wanted the relief of not having to inhabit minds. Um, I think I would, I would enjoy writing for the screen, but it's just, I don't know. It is easier. Oh, so much easier.
0: You know, it's not easy to, to write a, a very good screenplay or teleplay, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, like sure. it, it's still difficult. But compared to writing a novel, because I've done both, like okay. it's quicker. Yeah. That's one of the things that's great about it is like you can write a screenplay relatively quickly, especially it's not going to take you 15 years. You know, I don't think.
2: Oh, I, let's hope that <laughs> would just be <laughs> stupid. And you know how
0: many pages it's going to be like, there's so many, there's so many things about it that appeal to me. You're like, okay, if I just get to this page, it's a fixed format and you work within it. It's like, there's a structure and there's sort, sort of certain things that happen in movie plots that audiences myself included are just you have to Trained do these things to, right. yeah, it's like it's like watchmaking expect, or something yes. and i guess the same thing is true with a novel like you do have to hit certain beats in a novel but there, it's a much uh, more unwieldy form like you can really maneuver in there and you know kind of break all the rules mm-hmm. and uh i don't know it's a, i feel like the two as creative exercises sort of pair well, like one and then the other. Yes. Cause if you, if you only write screenplays, I'm assuming eventually you'll be like, I just want to inhabit some minds. I'm so tired of just like glossing over, or, you know, there is some pleasure to be derived from like going deep, but it's just really rigorous work.
2: It's so rigorous. <laughs> um, and just, I, I'm the type of person who always resists my first impulses when I'm writing scenes in fiction. um, wanting scenes to go to places that aren't the expected places and aren't even my first kind of my first impressions of where a scene should go and how characters should feel about a moment.
0: And is that, uh, I'm imagining your work as an actor informs your screenwriting. I mean, mean, you you must've read a lot of stuff when you were acting, you get sent a a lot of
2: stuff. And, and, and just, I had a lot of, actually, I didn't mention this, but I had a lot of training in theater arts, so a lot of plays as well.
0: Okay. So Um, you, and imagining reading a ton of really shitty scripts. Yeah. Right.
2: That, that hopefully (laughs) hasn't had much influence on my writing. Well, but you know what not to do,
0: you know, or what you don't like.
2: But I think I've learned a lot, even from some of the classics, like, you know, Chekhov's plays and the way he beautifully, um, evokes what a character deeply wants and yearns for without ever saying it explicitly.
0: Yeah. There's like a kind of a, a a very crystalline quality to his work. It's like that. I don't know. I I always found, uh, there's like a through line between a guy like him and like the minimalists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like he sort of was ground zero for, you know, a lot. I don't know. In my, at least reading, he was kind of the beginning and I know it probably was the
2: short story for sure. Yeah.
0: And just, uh, I think like as a young man, there's always like the, there was always this sort of appeal that that kind of work had. I think part of it was just that it tricks you into thinking it's easy.
2: <laughs> right. Cause you're like, oh, there these... isn't effortlessness about it. It yeah. seems.
0: Yeah. yeah. But then you, then you try to like imitate it and you wind up with a really terrible story. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, all right. Well, let's see. You got your book going out. Are you going on tour or anything?
2: I've been on tour. I have some more to go.
0: Uh Uh-huh. You Um, like that part of it?
2: I have, I am, it doesn't come easily for me again, because I'm I'm sort of an introvert, shy, um, self-promotion is tough. Um, that said, I am very, I'm I'm keenly aware of, of how lucky I am to be going on tour. Mm-hmm. And what has been really um, special is, is um, not just being slammed with, with the silence <laughs> that comes after putting a book out there, yeah. um, but having this kind of limbo phase where I'm getting to interact with readers and getting a lot of feedback in a very kind of loud way before the sign, before, before. <laughs> the inevitable and depressing yeah. silence and yeah. depression hits. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it's something that, I mean, you've been, uh, around the block, you've published a book before and,
2: and my know. husband's a novelist. So I, he's published too. So I feel like we, you know, I, I am so jaded. Yes, yeah. I but know.
0: If you're not, if it's not, you, you know, you do all this work, you find, it feels like the summit. You're like, I'm almost there. It's going to go out. It's going to be in the bookstore. There's going to be some, and then it's just like usually it's like crickets. Oh yeah. (laughs) And the publisher, you know, typically because they have so many different books that they're working on authors, like your book goes out, you might have like a couple of weeks where you're the bell of the ball and then on, on it goes, the machine keeps churning. And And it just
2: seems like there's so much less space as much as there's this sort of overflow of media and, and outlets. There's less space anywhere for serious considerations of literary work there's less space for everything it's so everything feels so crowded to me
0: mm-hmm. like i was talking to friends and they were like did you watch twin peaks did you see this did you go and i'm like i don't have
2: time no. i didn't see and i How didn't do read." people have time for all that I,
0: and then it was like you know i'm gonna admit something like dennis johnson died and they were like well did you read a tree of smoke and i was like no like mm-hmm. I, you just feel, I feel like this terrible guilt, and I'm like, I didn't retrieve his phone, and I'm like, you know, like, mm-hmm. but it's like, it, I feel this anxiety of trying to keep up mm-hmm. with all of the cultural output, and it's like all the I go through Netflix, I'm like trying to find a movie for my kids or myself right. or something, and I'm like, who, who's making all these? Who's watching all these? I don't know. Yeah, I guess there's billions of people in the world, but can there be enough of an audience for this to be sustainable? Like for the, for the numbers to work out, to be making this stuff. And I guess like
2: people are more, they're so addicted to the drug of, I mean, I was, I never did social media ever, ever. never, never once, never even dabbled in it until with this book, my, my publisher kindly said, you don't have to but it would really it would be a good idea to think about
0: what it. What are you doing? Which ones?
2: So I just did Facebook. That's it. That's it. And I have to tell you that... You're addicted? <laughs> no, no. The opposite. That, But, but I, f- I find it to be so demanding, even to go on for 10 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And I find it to be so draining. It's like I'm, I'm giving myself an injection of ADHD when, by nature and by vocation... I, I am a need to be the opposite of someone with ADHD. Like that is to say somebody with almost like with just complete tunnel vision to the point where I, I am terrible at, at juggling schedules and forget my kids, you know, meetings with the teacher and this, that, and the other. Um, but I feel like that's what I have to do in order to be a writer, a writer. Yeah. And just that 10 minutes of, of of Facebook. I don't think I can continue to do that when I start writing the next book in a serious way.
0: I mean, use it for promotion, like to get, you know, I'm going to have a reading in Boston or whatever and let people know, but you constantly, otherwise it's like I constantly have to feed the beast. I've got to go write something on Facebook and let my people know, and it becomes this compulsion.
2: It's that, but also what you were talking about, about the the kind of um, the avalanche of or tidal wave of information coming, because I wasn't exposed to that before. I would just like look at the New York Times or a couple of things yeah. and not be washed over by all of it the way you get in a newsfeed. Right. Um, and so I, I, am like this new baby to all of that. And, and I, it doesn't feel Save good yourself. to my system. You're yeah. not
0: damn it. I'm ruined. I'm already gone. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, if you haven't done that, like don't, I mean, I, I get doing it to help your book and your publisher, you know, there's something to it, but Less, you do
2: feel very out of the loop. That's one thing I'll say. That's good.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what loop, you know, because mm-hmm. like I did this thing where after the election I was very traumatized and I'm a news junkie, which mm-hmm. is not something I say proudly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a certain pride I have in, in trying to be informed, mm-hmm. but it's the, it's a very fine line between toxicity and like civic duty, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think after the election, I was just like so traumatized mm-hmm. that I was like, um, I'm, I'm out. Like Mm, for a while, mm. and between that and like February, I made my phone a dumb phone. Oh, good for you! And I was like talking about it on this show. I I think I was kind of proud of myself. I heard one of those. (laughs) You're like, I think I actually turned that one off as you were like, you know, thumping your chest about being on social No, no,
2: no. I think it might have been with Franzen.
0: Maybe so. Mm -hmm. You know, but I was just like, I, I gotta, I gotta just take a break. And I read more books. Mm -hmm. I was healthier. Um, I felt like more mentally.
2: So why did you go back?
0: (laughs) I think I, I mean, there was a necessity, like a true necessity that I I felt I had where I was changing the way that the show was distributed. I like opened up the archives. I wanted to let everybody know.
1: Right.
0: So I was like, Oh, I got to go back on Twitter. And then I do use Twitter as like a news aggregator and it's how I keep up with the news. Mm -hmm. And it's really effective in that way because Mm -hmm. I can follow all these journalists and like flip through and like, I, it, I don't know. And then with all the information that's coming at us, it, it's addictive. And it's also like, what deep, do we
2: do with all that information though?
0: I want to know what the he, I want to know what's going on. Right. And I want to know, um, that there's going to hopefully be some accountability. Like, I feel like right. the shit's going oh, to hit yeah. the fan. I hope so. That's my sense. Well, I was just going to say with like, with your lineage as like a person born of like resistance leaders. <laughs> Maybe I'm sitting across from the person who's going to rise up. Oh, <laughs> No pressure. Oh, thanks, Brad. <laughs> Please, I'm looking for someone to follow. I need someone who's going to lead oh, us out God. of this darkness. <laughs> um, but I, I think that there's just a, a great sense of unease and fear and anger and disgust. But don't
2: you think that to a certain extent, I'm not advocating for being completely in the dark or not following what's going on at all? But don't you think there's a certain way in which just keeping up with what's happening allows us to be complacent and not take action in some ways? Because it almost feels like, well, we're doing our part. We're reading the articles. We're staying up on what's going on. Yeah. We're not, we're not, we're not in the dark. We're not ignorant of it. And then I just worry that all the noise um, numbs us too.
0: Yeah. And it's like, but yeah. And it's like, how do you take direct action? How do you take direct action? Whether I think calling, mm-hmm. you know, if you call mm-hmm. your representatives, you actually make those phone calls. Cause that's not exactly a fun process, but you call, you make your voice heard. you spend a half like that to me. I've had some enriching experiences doing that where I've actually had heart to heart conversations with human beings oh, with whom I would otherwise probably, and it would seem, I would disagree, mm-hmm. but like I've had a genuine human connection during some of those calls, which has made me feel good where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, like not every, it's not like I'm dealing with like uh, people who are just light years away from me. Right. Like there's, there's some common ground somewhere.
1: That's important.
0: That's important. But it's also like, you know, like next weekend there's the March for truth, uh, on Saturday. Where I think. is that? Uh, oh. I got to, I'm sure it's okay. downtown at like Pershing mm-hmm. Square. You mm-hmm. know, that's usually where a lot of this stuff originates in LA, but, um, like that to me feels like something like get out of the streets and hold a sign and, um, be seen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, mean, I think that it collectively, if enough people do that, it's going to make an impression, you know, the media is going to have to cover it. Um, but otherwise I just retweet a lot of shit. <laughs> and I, I, I think people who follow me on Twitter would laugh because like I'm, I'm reading and I'm trying to just be like a, I guess like a, What's the word I'm looking for a resource. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to amplify messages mm-hmm. that I feel like deserve to be heard and need to be
2: heard. But... That's important. But I th- also, what you said about like having actual conversations with people who have different perspectives, Yeah, that to me is probably the most meaningful and perhaps potent. How hope. do you
0: do that in LA though? I feel well, like everybody's it's very difficult. Right.
2: And also just in the realm of social media, it's almost impossible. So how, I don't know
0: got to get out into the country. Going yeah, going road trips. Midwest. Back to the Midwest. Go back to your roots. Trust me, I know all those people. So, uh it's a delight meeting you. You too. And uh I congratulate you on your book. That's a huge achievement. Thank and you. it's got to be a great source of pride uh for you and maybe a source of relief to know that you you ran the full marathon with it. Yeah, you know, it's a huge <laughs> source of relief. <laughs> not going to lie. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you, you know, are no longer carrying that burden, and uh, I applaud you for the effort. And I wish you the very best on whatever's next.
2: Thank you. It's been so nice to be here with you. All right, guys. There you go.
0: That is Charmaine Craig. Her novel is called Miss Burma. It's available now from Grove Press. You can find her online at CharmaineCraig.com, and she is also, as we discussed. On Facebook. The novel, one more time, is called Miss Burma. Go get your copy now. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app, it's free. It's the best way to listen. Get it wherever you get your apps. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. That's the email address, letters at otherppl.com. This program is listener-supported. If you would like to show your support for the Other People podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also donate via PayPal. There's a link in the sidebar on the show's official website. So thanks once more to everybody for the kind uh, notes regarding Walter. I was truly overwhelmed and very touched by that. Dozens of you uh, writing in. To offer your condolences on Walter and uh, and my novel, <laughs> uh, though it could still there it could still see the light of day yet. You just don't know. It's hard to talk about. I, I don't like talking about it because it's hard to feel. I guess I just am not clear On how I feel Not good at articulating it yet Don't want to come off sounding like I'm Bullshitting you Or myself It's a strange process I wish I could just write a story You know, Like I wish I could just uh, I like to write a, about a gumshoe Some mystery it Just pops into my head For me, it's got to be this, like, uh, you know, inside-out process. We'll see. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs)